Good morning. Let's turn in God's Word to Psalm 124. Now, the CDC has given various guidelines about public gatherings. I don't think it it uh, applies to decibels of greetings. So, if you want to try that again, I'll say good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's very good. See, they, you may be unconscious by the end of the message, but I like to start out with everybody conscious. So, Psalm 124, please. Psalm 124. It's good to be back with you at Boulevard. We haven't been here for some time not counting Wednesday when we were here, but I mean on a Lord's Day, we haven't been here uh, for some time, and it's always a pleasure to be with you, and a pleasure to be with any of God's people physically as we're able, because that's a blessing we haven't always enjoyed in recent times, and so I trust we don't take it for granted, and even this morning, some are having to meet with us virtually. We're glad you're here. Uh, as Paul said to the Philippians, even as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. So even if you're not here physically, you're in our heart. And some aren't able to come out physically, even in regular times, we might say, much less in the current outbreak of uh, infection and whatnot going on in our country. Psalm 124, and we're going to read it in its, in its entirety. It's not very long, eight verses. Psalm 124. It is one of the Song of Ascents, or Song of Degrees, of David, it's titled. Verse 1, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive, when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters would have overwhelmed us, The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that's Psalm 124. Now, I think of a old Southern Gospel song that says, I don't know just what I'd do if the Lord hadn't been walking by my side. And that's what this psalm very much reminds me of. It is an exaltation of a believer who knows the tremendous benefit and the security that flows to him from the Lord, from knowing the Lord. Now, let me just say that if there's anybody listening, either live or uh, over the Internet, or we might say later by recording even, who doesn't know the Lord, that this is a very insecure world. There's a lot of things that can happen to you, and you know that. And physically, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ aren't exempt from the physical dangers and from the regular problems of the real world. We know that. We have to contend with COVID-19 like everybody else. Believers in other parts of the world have to contend with malaria. They have to contend with yellow fever. They have to contend with civil war. They have to contend with grinding poverty. Being a Christian, being a born-again person where you have a living relationship with the Lord does not exempt you from physical problems, from health problems, from economic problems, from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would call them. In other words, all the stuff that we go through 
on planet Earth. It doesn't exempt you from any of those things. In fact, I'll just say that being a believer actually brings you into certain things that other people don't have to go through. That being associated with the Lord Jesus Christ will associate you with persecution in this world. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So beyond your taxes, your bills, your health, your family issues, school, work, you name it, all the ordinary stuff that everybody goes through, if you're a Christian, you are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ whom this world has hated, still hates, and ever shall hate until he comes and forces them to capitulate to his authority, which the Bible tells us in Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2 quotes it, that one day every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have to understand that's going to change someday. Someday everyone is going to have to know and recognize and publicly affirm whom the Lord Jesus is. But even if they know it, that doesn't mean they love the Lord or they're subservient to the Lord or they want to serve the Lord and do his will. They're against the Lord. And the Lord told his disciples in John 15, if they've received my word, then they'll receive yours as well. If they've received me, they'll receive you. But he goes on to tell them in chapter 16 of John that they're going to bring you before councils. They're going to smite you. They're going to whip you. They're going to beat you. In fact, the time's coming, said the Lord Jesus, when he who kills you will think he does God's service. Now, does that sound strange to you? Well, really, it's not been strange in church history. I mean, there have been times, this is really weird, isn't it? When people calling themselves the church have killed believers in Christ in the name of serving God. Isn't that weird? The Spanish Inquisition, great example of that, okay? Where you had believers, for instance, in Valladolid, Spain in the 16th century, who were undergoing a real revival. We just sang, I think it was J. Edwin Orr who wrote that hymn. J. Edwin Orr's great hymn about revival there. And these people were receiving it. They had the Reina Valera Bible that we still, and if you read Spanish, you still read a version of that. It actually predates the King James by about six decades, and the King James translators consulted it among other existing translations in Europe at that time. Great piece of scholarship. And like any bit of the Word of God, when it's been translated into the language that the people can understand, the Holy Spirit uses it, and people, when they believe that word, enter into a relationship with the living God. The Bible calls that being born again or regenerated. They are given new spiritual life. And people started to get saved. Doctors and professors and people in the upper classes mostly because they were the educated and the literate in that time and place. And because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, people that were calling themselves the church but had ceased to believe what the Bible taught, and so they were not a church, regardless of what they say, because a church is a group of people in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that follow his word as their sole authority source. And this church, as it called itself, persecuted those believers and pretty well stamped out that revival. Those believers were taken to a square in Valladolid where I've street preached before, and they were burnt at the stake. Unless they give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
they said, stick your tongue out. And they'd stick their tongue out and they'd put an iron ring on their tongue and they'd burn the edge of their tongue so their tongue would swell up and they couldn't take the ring out of their mouth. And they were unable, therefore, to sing, pray, or otherwise testify to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ as they went to be burnt to the stake, burnt at the stake for their faith in the Lord Jesus and for their profession of Him. Now, I wish I could tell you that that is passe, that that went out like five centuries ago. But in the 20th century, missiologists tell us that more people died for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ than in all 19 centuries previous. You could put together all the martyrs from the first century. You could start with, you know, the persecutions that we read about in the book of Acts. And you could come all the way up through the 20th or through the 19th century, excuse me. And in the 20th century alone, more martyrs were killed in that century than all those other 19th centuries combined. And guess what? In the 21st century, it continues unabated. Now that's a problem, isn't it? But if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, life is worse. Because for all the dangers and the problems and the difficulties you face, you say, well, at least if I'm not a believer in Christ, I don't have to be persecuted for Christ. I don't have to worry about being tortured or imprisoned or killed like some of those people are. I've got a better life. I can enjoy life now at least and not worry about those types of persecution. Well, I'm afraid, my friend, really, that without the Lord Jesus Christ, you're missing what real life is. See, the Lord Jesus said that he has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And he said, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So we're not really living until we know the Lord Jesus. Yes, we're walking around, we're respirating, I trust. You know, our lungs are inflating with great regularity. And we're taking deep breaths, especially when no one's looking and we can pull the mask down. You know, taking deep breaths and our heart is beating and all the synapses are firing. And we have all the marks of physical life, right? But Ephesians 2, speaking to people that had been unbelievers and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, while we're walking around with all the marks of physical and biological life, until we know the Lord, God says, you're dead to me. You don't have a relationship with me. It's not that God doesn't know us. God knows everything about us. He's our creator after all. But the Lord Jesus Christ came that we might know God. No one is able to know the Father, said he, except he to whomsoever the Father reveals himself. The Son's able to reveal the Father is what he explains in Matthew 11. And you say, oh, I've got to go through the Son then, through Jesus Christ, to know who God is. Yes, the Bible says that. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And here's the wonderful thing. Salvation is exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to go through Christ to know God. But the wonderful thing is, that in the same breath in Matthew 11, where the Lord said, no one who knows the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son reveals him, in the next breath, the Lord Jesus said, come unto me. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So salvation's exclusively in Christ. You won't find it in Muhammad, in Gautama Buddha, in Joseph Smith, in Brigham Young, in David Koresh, 
in any other flavor of the week, religiously speaking. You won't find it, certainly from Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. You're not going to find the reason for your existence, where you've come from, why you're here, nor where you're going, much less know your Creator. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know Him, and the Lord Jesus tells you to come. In fact, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, that's what God is saying, come. That's what the Lord says, come. And the church joins the bride with the Holy Spirit says, come. The Lord says to you, come. Now, these people in Psalm 124, it seems a long way around the horn to get to Psalm 124, but these people who it speaks of in Psalm 124, they knew the Lord. They are the people of Israel in what we call the Old Testament the time before the coming of the Lord Jesus. And these songs of degrees or songs of ascents, there are 15 of them between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. They were probably sung, it is thought, as different Israelites would come up to worship the Lord at Jerusalem, which is something that God's law ordained three seasons of the year, especially where every man in Israel was to present himself before the Lord in Jerusalem. You had it in the springtime where you had a cluster of some feasts in the first month there. You had Passover, unleavened bread, which was conjoined with it, and the Feast of First Fruits, which also was during that week of unleavened bread. And then they would count 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits. They'd come to the Feast of Weeks, or known in Acts chapter 2 as Pentecost, and they would come to that feast in the third month. And then you would have a break, fourth month, fifth month, sixth month, no big national holidays where you had to go up to Jerusalem. But then came the seventh month. I've lived in modern Israel in the seventh month. Good luck getting your mail. Because every holiday they shut down the post office. You think it's bad now in COVID-19 and the postal service taking a while for things. Well, Well, don't be, I'm never sad to see my bills come later than they ought to, you know, so it's not all a bad thing, is it? But in Israel... It took me, you know, a whole month, going a whole month without getting a letter because there's three big holidays in the seventh month. You have the Feast of Trumpets, which regathers all the people together, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, one of two seven-day feasts, the other being at the beginning of the year, the unleavened bread that I mentioned. Now, as they came up to feasts like this, they would sing these psalms, and As they sang this psalm, to them it was like that old southern gospel song, I don't know what I'd do if the Lord hadn't been walking by my side. Because they'd look back on their history and they'd say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. So you can see this is kind of the singing it. You know how... I don't know who you want to think of here, but there are so many singers. You listen to a live recording and they're singing some well-known song and they come to this point and they say, everybody now. And so the audience starts singing along, right? Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. We see that same type of thing over in Psalm 129, verse 1. Many a time they've afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. Many a time they've afflicted me from my youth. So they're getting into this responsive kind of singing. Sort of this call and sing back type of thing. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. Now, 
in Hebrew, it's even a little simpler, apparently, than this phrase, who was on our side. Although I like how most of the English translations have said, who was on our side, because I think really that brings out the idea of the phrase. But simply, people like Darby and Grant will show you in their translation, it's if the Lord had not been for us, is the idea. Now, that is a statement that is said so often in the Bible for God's people. Whether we're talking about Israel in the Old Testament, I think it's over 200 times. God will say to them how he is for them. Okay? And uh, we have many, many promises in the Bible of that. Maybe the most famous being that title from the book of Isaiah of Messiah, Emmanuel which is God with us, right? That's the same sort of idea. And Matthew opens with that sentiment. His name shall be called Emmanuel, for God is with us. And when we think of that phrase for us, Romans 8, of course, comes to mind, doesn't it? Where we read there, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, isn't that wonderful, tremendous exaltation? As we say there, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is not bravado. This is not idle boasting. This is not hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. This is exactly the situation that if you've got God on your side, who is it that can contend with you? If you have God on your side, what problem is too big? What trial is too great? What uncertain future too scary? If you have the Lord on your side, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's no exaggeration. Because the reality is that there's no enemy as powerful as God. There's no foe as insidiously cunning that he can outwit God. There's no one that can go beyond God's wisdom, his scope and ken. There's no one that can get ahead of God because he knows the end from the beginning. There's no one who existed before God because he always was. He is he who is and was and is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If the Lord wasn't on our side, what could happen? Well, we could say, if the Lord wasn't on our side, anything could happen. We couldn't fight any of it off. Is there any of us so strong that we say there's not the virus made that could kill me? (laughs) That's a laugh, isn't it? Because not to make light of anybody's suffering in the current problem, and I've had some friends that have died of COVID-19, but there are worse viruses in the world even now that we know about. I mean, Ebola is much worse. Marburg is much worse. And many of the things that have come through history have been much worse. The Black Death or Bubonic Plague, as it's known, have been much worse, right? And you read the book of Revelation, you read about pestilence, how that's in this world's future. And people say, oh, if we can just get together and if we just have enough people studying in the sciences and if we just put enough money into epidemiology and research, we can get rid of all these things. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm standing here as a great example of a person who, if it hadn't been for modern medicine, I wouldn't have made it out of infancy, literally. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be alive. If it hadn't been for antibiotics many times since then, maybe I wouldn't be alive either for as many times in my life as I've had bronchitis and pneumonia. 
I mean, all kinds of things that used to kill people that haven't killed me. And, and they could, you know. And we look at the providence of God, how God gives man a mind. He gives human beings the ability to think and to study his creation and to examine biochemistry and to examine virology and bacteriology and all these related disciplines and come up with treatments and even cures in some cases. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these are wonderful blessings from God. They certainly are. And we applaud those who are using the minds God gave them to do these things. But at the end of the day, they are not, with respect to Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the founders of Google, they are not going to disinvent death. Because they publicly told Time Magazine some years ago that they were going to do that. Oh, sorry, folks. It's not going to happen. I don't care if we develop cyborg bodies like the Terminator, you know, I'll be back. Or if we do it at the cellular level and it's gene therapy or something. Will there be advances? Will there be treatments for certain things? Sure. But you read Revelation and there are just millions of people that are going to be taken out by the diseases that come upon this world. Why? Because disease and death is a result not simply of biochemical processes, but it is here in the world because of sin. Sin is what produces death. That's what everybody doesn't want to deal with, right? They talk all about, oh, we need to go for this chemical treatment. We need to go for this genetic treatment. We need to go to this medical expert, this scientist, this person. Great, fine. But what about the underlying problem? Sin. Sin, when it hath conceived, says James, brings forth death. Now, I'll tell you who can conquer sin and death because he already has. That is the Lord. That believers are one day going to sing, according to 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where's thy sting? O grave, where's thy victory? And how can we sing with such assurance? How can we utter that poetry with the confidence that it is the sublimest truth that's ever been uttered in human language. We know it because Jesus is the one who rose again from the dead. He says, I became dead and behold, I am alive again. And the Bible elsewhere would say he is alive forevermore. He is the resurrection and the life. So the Lord being on our side, we have the ultimate conqueror. And for that, Romans 8 again, I cite, which says we are more than conqueror conquerors through him who loved us. Now, if we want to talk about a historic group of people that have suffered, we could talk about a lot of people that have suffered. We could talk about people from Colombia, for example. People from Colombia who in La Violencia in the 20th century saw thousands and thousands of people killed in horrendous civil war. We could talk about Los Cubanos, couldn't we? We could talk about the Cuban diaspora and many of the stories they've had to tell and many of my friends of a certain generation have told me about how their family members were killed or imprisoned or lost everything that they had. We could talk about the Armenian genocide. And again, my friends of an older generation can talk about their grandparents who died in the Armenian genocide, maybe more than two million of them back around the 19-teens and 20s through what happened to them throughout the Middle East. 
But if you want to go back through history and talk about all the terrible catastrophes, all of the terrible examples of man's inhumanity against his fellow man, I think you're hard-pressed to beat Israel for their national history. That from antiquity, literally from the time of the patriarchs, on up to modern times, they have been the most attacked, most persecuted, most vilified, most hated national group of people in the world. At least as much as anyone, okay? They're certainly in the top three, I would say, and, and I would put them at number one. Now, thinking about the Holocaust, thinking about the pogroms in Tsarist Russia, thinking about what they went through in the Iberian Peninsula under the Inquisition, especially in the um, 13th through mm, 16th century, more or less, uh, when you think about all the things that have happened to them, and you go back to antiquity, and you think about the Egyptian slavery, and you think about the Syrian incursions, and you think about the Assyrian captivity, and the Babylonian captivity, and then the Medo-Persians, and finally the Romans. And we could talk about various destructions of Jerusalem. Some historians, I think, have put it at over 30 times. Jerusalem has been conquered and destroyed through history. And the Lord Jesus, when he was coming out of the temple buildings, you remember, was asked by his disciples, Lord, look at these beautiful buildings and look at this stonework. And the Lord said, I tell you the truth, that not one stone is going to be left upon another, which was literally fulfilled within a generation. AD 70, the Romans came and knocked down the temple. And that wasn't the first time. The Jews even have a holiday, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av that they celebrate, I think it's usually around August for us, where they remember all the terrible things that have happened to their nation through history because a lot of them have fallen on that date. Like, they'll tell us that that's when the Romans knocked down the temple. That's when the Babylonians knocked down the temple. And even David, who the Holy Spirit originally used to write this apparently, he says here, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us. Now think of all the evil stratagems and plots of men. People get really excited around election time, right? Have you noticed that? And they say, oh, we've got to take action here because there are these people over here that are plotting to do this or that. And there are those people over there that are plotting to do this or that. And maybe there's even some people in the middle plotting to do this or that. People are rising up trying to do things. And you can see that historically, can't you? You can see groups that are fighting from different parts of society and men are rising up. Well, there have always been people to rise up against Israel. There was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, who made Israel serve with great rigor, who wanted to destroy the men of Israel. So take the baby boys and throw them into our God, the Nile River, one of their main gods at least, and we'll kill them. Or there were people like Ben-Hadad of Syria who would come down and who would attack Israel. And many Ben-Hadads, because that was a dynastic name, much like Pharaoh is a dynastic title. There are many different pharaohs. It's the title, like there are many different presidents. There's always been a man to rise up. In the days of Nehemiah, we read Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah 2 this morning was good, but we go on a little farther in that book. We read there's Sanballat. There's 
Tobiah, there's Geshem. There's this consortium of people, and they're rising up against Israel. We read about the people that rose up against the Lord Jesus, even from his own nation. That people in the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all these disparate groups that in normal times would have disagreed and fought with each other. They came together and they were united in this thing that they were against the Lord Jesus. And we see that over and over. Isaiah says, say not confederacy. Don't talk about the conspiracies of men. Don't talk about men getting together and what they can do. He could say, you know, the man rose up against us. But guess who was on our side? The Lord was on our side. Now, he rather graphically talks about what men tried to do. Look at the poetry here in verse 3. Then they would have swallowed us alive like some ravenous beast. And there's probably allusion here even to some of the ancient myths, some of the ancient stories. You know how how we have to read the Iliad and the Odyssey and things like that in school? Well, they had to read about Mot, the god of death, and they had to read about how Mot would swallow up Baal and so forth. Well, that's what the enemies were trying to do to Israel. The very same kind of language. The Hebrew word here for swallowed up is the word that the book of Numbers uses to talk about swallowing up the sons of Korah. They would have swallowed us up alive. That's a pretty scary thing. Every once in a while up where I live, we have a sinkhole. We live in territory that you know has a certain kind of stone and it's prone to sinkholes. I remember some years ago on the west coast of Florida, somewhere around Tampa, I think it was, there was a guy in his bed one morning and suddenly... He, his bed, his house fell into a sinkhole, never to be seen again. I mean, you talk about a scary thought being swallowed alive. That's an awful thing to think about. Apparently, there was an earthquake just today in Indonesia and many people have died. What a terrible thing when the ground is shaking and it's going to swallow you up. Now imagine that feeling, verse 3. They would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. It's like something burning. And you know how things can smolder and suddenly there's an infusion of oxygen and that being the, uh, the, the fuel for the fire. It flames out at you. That's the image here. Their anger flamed out at us. Now, imagine a flamethrower. A flame is coming toward you. Does that give you a good feeling? Not me. (laughs) Verse four. Then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Now, there are slight differences here. Water can have a tremendously devastating effect. I don't need to tell South Floridians about that, do I? I mean, you're familiar with hurricanes. You're familiar with tsunamis that can be generated in the ocean. I've had a number of friends that have had to work in parts of the world that were afflicted by these things, either by the one in the Indian Ocean some years ago, or more recently, Hurricane Katrina. I think, maybe I got it out, maybe Katrina was first, it's hard to say, but both have been in recent memory anyway. But all the damage that those waters would do, and Israel is a land that can have flash floods. But when it talks about the stream in verse 4, or some translate it the torrent, This is this water that comes and sweeps everything away before it. 
And finally, there's kind of this cumulative idea in verse 5. Then the swollen waters or the proud waters, the water swelling up, look at my power, would have gone over my soul. But notice it's all hypothetical. It's not what happened, it's what would have happened. They would have swallowed us up alive. The waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over us. The swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Do you know for whom this was not hypothetical? The Lord Jesus Christ. We read another psalm, Psalm 69. He says, Save me, O God, for I sink in deep waters. I sink in the mire where there is no standing. The floods of waters overflow me. Same language in Hebrew. What he wouldn't let happen to Israel happened to him. They would have destroyed them. You see, that's how life is. There are floods that come. The Lord Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 7, didn't he? There are floods that come in this world. And what's going to save you from the flood is where your foundation is. If it's on sand, you know you've not got a prayer. If it's on rock, you know you can stand. Well, we already heard our brother read from 1 Samuel 2 today that we have a rock that is absolutely unique. There's no other rock like our rock. That's what Deuteronomy says. It's the Lord. He says, verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, or some translate that, Praise the Lord, thank the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Now, they would have wanted to chew up the people of God and spit them out. They wanted to trap them like a hunter traps a bird. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Isn't that a wonderful thought to be trapped, but then to be escaped? Now think about the traps that were laid against the Lord Jesus. You read in Matthew 26, for example. How the scribes and the Pharisees were plotting to kill the Lord Jesus. And they were laying a trap. They were saying, we need to find somebody to betray him. But not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, excuse me, knowing your New Testament history, when was the Lord Jesus crucified anyway? Oh, on the feast day, wasn't it? Oh, so how'd that trap work out for them? Oh, it worked just fine, you see. Our man, Judas Iscariot, he was the on the inside. You know, the agent provocateur. Sorry, Canadians, for my butchery of French. But anyway, we don't study it down here. It's all Spanish for us. But anyway, uh, you know, he's the inside man. And Judas Iscariot delivered up Jesus to do what? Whatever God had before determined to be done, Peter explains in the book of Acts. You trapped him, did you? Well, by trapping the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you did? You put an inside man in the prison who had the key to breaking out of that prison, of busting out with all of the inmates, all of the captives, rescued by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of our hymns says, He, death by dying, slew. So he says, our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. We're associated with what's heavenly, with what can fly now. And our spirits can soar because we come back to the truth we began with in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, what can man do against me? You can go back through Israel's history, ancient and modern, and Israel remains. Why are the Jews still here? Why do they still exist as a people? Because God still has a future for them. 
Unfortunately, the majority of them on the planet today don't know their Messiah, Jesus Christ, personally. But the day is coming when they'll acknowledge him as Messiah, when they'll look on him whom they pierced, when they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Zechariah 12 promises it. And what's God doing right now? Well, he's saving Jews and he's saving Gentiles. Anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus and says, you know, just the same thing you've done for Israel, you can do for me individually. You can save me. You can bring me out of the trap I'm in, the trap of sin and guilt and the judgment I deserve, much less all the things that come upon me in life. I can know the Lord and have the Lord walking with me and my help, my deliverance is in the Lord. Now there's an echo of Psalm 121. I look to the, I lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help is from the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. And here that phrase is repeated. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this morning, I'm not looking to the Republicans. I'm not looking to the Democrats. I'm not looking to the governments of any country of this world. I'm not looking to any NGO, you know, one of these organizations trying to develop vaccines and medicines. And I'm not looking to the United Nations to iron out all the problems of the world. I'm looking... To the Lord. He is my help. He is the creator. And I trust he is yours too. And if he's not, well, he could be. All you got to do is ask the Lord for help. Ask him to help you with your deepest need, the sin and judgment that rests upon you if you don't know Christ. But if you know the Lord, any trouble, any problem, anything you face, you can take it to the Lord and say, Lord, you are my help. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are my maker, and you can deal with this. Father, we're thankful this morning for such confidence that we can have in our God. And indeed, we don't know what we would do if the Lord hadn't been walking by our side. God is for us, and we're just astounded by that. The covenant-keeping God, the great I am that I am, that made exceeding great and precious promises to the patriarchs and then to their descendants, the nation of Israel, and now has extended those things in the church age, to the Gentile world in a tremendous way. And yet those Old Testament promises are still in force for Israel and everything promised to them will one day be completed by thy hand because our God is for us and no one can be against us. We thank thee for this and we pray give thy people confidence this morning in our great God. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.